Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. At the second in a series of congressional hearings on white supremacist violence in the United States, lawmakers questioned this week the priorities and placement of resources by the FBI and other federal agencies. Black Americans continue to find themselves at the greatest risk, which is why this designation of black identity extremism seems particularly absurd. We had a, a former FBI official on the record who said that black identity extremists pose no threat to our public safety. And as the United States faces the horror of the latest mass shooting in Virginia Beach, a new book traces America's deadly relationship to guns to this country's founding on genocide and slavery. We speak to journalist and author Tom Hartman. You can really only have slavery with a police state. Without a police state, slavery doesn't work because slaves, nobody wants to be a slave, right? People, people revolt against it. And in fact, there were a lot of slave revolts in the South that are generally not taught as part of our history. And guns facilitated that. These stories, Trump's trade wars and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. As two new devastating reports about the fragility of Earth's climate and ecology were released this week, there were several actions by activists and lawmakers in D.C. to address both climate change and polluters. On Tuesday, the Grand Canyon Centennial Protection Act was introduced by Representative Raul Grijalva of Arizona to ban new uranium mining at or near the Grand Canyon, a national park that receives millions of visitors each year and that is the ancestral home or sacred site for several indigenous groups. Though President Obama banned new mining at the World Wonder, the new law, if enacted, would make that ban permanent. Before the ban, several mining operations poisoned the area's land and water and left more than 500 abandoned sites where high levels of toxins remain. Carletta Talusi, a council member from the Havasupai Nation, whose citizens live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, said at a press conference Tuesday that the toxic waste from mining has also claimed lives. A lot of my ancestors that stood up in the 1980s against Canyon Mine that is located right next to our sacred mountain have passed away. And they told us to keep fighting this fight to protect our water and our existence, and that's what we're doing. And I also want to say that a lot of my family members have passed away because of such contamination. A lot of my friends have passed away, and that's got to stop. We can't continue this to happen. As human beings on this earth, we have a responsibility, not just Native Americans, but as human beings. We have a right to speak up and say, enough, enough atrocity to our waters, enough atrocity to our lands. In another move this week that impacts the drinking water for more than 5 million people along the Ohio River, the Ohio River Water Sanitation Commission, known as Orsanko, voted Thursday to overturn water pollution control standards, which it has overseen for more than 60 years. The move would make water protections optional for impacted states, which include Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. According to Food and Water Watch, the commission received more than 4,000 public comments, of which only nine supported the proposal to make water pollution protections voluntary. And all but two out of more than 20 commissioners voted to pass the change. 
Food and Water Watch Midwest organizer Andrea Chu said of the change that, quote, Orsanko commissioners have made it clear that they would rather help polluters skirt regulations than protect the everyday people who rely on the Ohio River for drinking water and recreation. In other environmental news, 2020 presidential candidate and Washington Governor Jay Inslee revealed this week that the Democratic National Committee will not host a climate-specific presidential primary debate and will punish candidates who attend a debate hosted by any other organization. In response to the DNC's decision, the Sunrise Movement tweeted, quote, This is an outrage. Almost every major candidate has supported the call for a climate debate but the DNC won't even let the American people hear their plans for one of the greatest challenges of our time. This is an emergency. We need the Democrats to act like it. End quote. The debate over a climate debate is occurring as two new reports make dire predictions for humanity. Australia's Breakthrough National Center for Climate says that unless humans take drastic and immediate action to stop the climate crisis, a combination of food production instability, Water shortages and extreme weather could result in a complete societal breakdown worldwide by 2050. Also on Tuesday, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration released new data showing that carbon dioxide levels reached a record high in the atmosphere during the month of May at 411.2 parts per million, and that is 3.5 parts per million higher than the peak measurement in 2018. In the cyber realm, other news from D.C. this week addressed issues of privacy and data. At a Tuesday hearing of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, representatives from several federal agencies, including the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, testified that even though facial recognition software is still in the development phase and is particularly flawed in recognizing people of color and women, it is being utilized throughout federal law enforcement and safety agencies. Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan expressed alarm that such technologies are being used to increase surveillance in her district. I got to tell you, and through the chairman, I hope this is okay. This stuff freaks me out. I'm a little freaked out by facial recognition, Mr. Chairman. I hope that's okay. I can say yeah, that. Yeah, okay. Thank you. My residents in Michigan's 13th congressional district have been subjected to increased surveillance and over-policing for decades. Currently, the city of Detroit rolled out real-time video surveillance program called the Project Greenlight in 2016 to monitor crime at late-night businesses like gas stations and liquor stores. But now the system has expanded to over 500 locations, including parks, churches, schools, women's clinics, addiction treatment centers, and now public housing buildings. Without notice or public comments from residents, the Detroit Police Department added facial recognition technology to the Project Greenlight, which means Detroit Police Department has the ability to locate anyone who has a Michigan driver's license or an arrest record in real time using video cameras mounted across the city in a database of over 50 million photos. In response to a question from Representative Tlaib, 
Kimberly Del Greco, a deputy assistant director at the FBI, said that the agency does not have a contract with Amazon for the facial recognition software being used in Detroit. Committee Chair Representative Elijah Cummings of Maryland said another hearing on facial recognition technology will be held to discuss the protection of privacy. Well, it seems that social justice organizations have been ahead of Congress in recognizing possible cyber threats to privacy and human rights. On Wednesday, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, held a conference on AI, or artificial intelligence, and human rights, the future of AI policy in the U.S., And on Saturday, June 8th, the organization Defending Rights and Dissent is hosting the program Stop Spying, the FBI Surveillance of Black and Muslim Communities at the David A. Clark School of Law at the University of the District of Columbia. Also in the district, members of the D.C. Coalition for the Defense of the Cuban Revolution are denouncing the Trump administration's decision this week to ban most American tourism to Cuba. The executive decision ends the popular people-to-people exchange travel license established by the Obama administration. Trump's decision also bans cruise ships. A member of the coalition, Kamal Benjamin, is among those who recently visited Cuba on a people-to-people exchange that this show also participated in last month. We have been working diligently and now assistance in helping people travel to Cuba people-to-people, educational trips with the Vincent Ramos Brigade. And I feel that to ban travel to Cuba for people that are interested in going to Cuba, this is the only nation that, that, that has this, these, these regulations and rules and bans on traveling to Cuba. And I think it's, it's abhorrent. It's against all laws and regulations that anyone should have against people traveling to another country. In the 60 years of the Cuban Revolution, Cuba has never done anything politically, economically, in attacks on U.S. regulation, rules, etc., etc. Matter of fact, it has tried to educate and help the people who's come to Cuba over the last 60 years. And for an administration to come back and turn back all of the Obamas' so-called friendship regulations, when he, uh, the things that he attempted to do, I think it's, it's, it is ridiculous. And I think we should all, organizations that, that hear this and are in support of Cuba in one way or the other, we should all come together and, and just demand that they stop it. Also in D.C., a coalition of sex workers and their allies held a press conference on Monday to announce new proposed legislation to decriminalize sex work in the District of Columbia. The Community Safety and Health Amendment Act of 2019 was co-introduced by at-large council members Anita Bonds, David Grasso, and Robert White, and Ward 1 council member Brianne Nadeau. Under current D.C. law, police can arrest anyone who sells sex, Plainclothes officers often go through the motions of soliciting a sex worker only to make an arrest. Supporters of the new proposed law say that it would eliminate this type of entrapment. And on Tuesday, June 11th, a service will be held to celebrate the life of Robert L. White, who was shot by police one year ago in Montgomery County, Maryland. Their service will start with a 6 p.m. vigil at Three Oaks Drive near Sligo Creek Parkway in Silver Spring. Then there will be a processional to the 7 p.m. service at Christ Congressional Church 
9525 Colesville Road, also in Silver Spring, Maryland. Learn more at the Silver Spring Justice Coalition Facebook page or send an email to silverspringjustice at gmail.com. And finally, in culture and media, a D.C. Council hearing was held on Monday to support the survival of the Sankofa Books and Video Store owned by filmmakers Sharikiana and Haile Garima. Chantel James has more. On Monday, the room at the Wilson Center was packed with supporters of Sankofa Video Books and Cafe on Georgia Avenue. With the sharp increases in Shaw's property values over the past few years as a result of D.C.'s rapid gentrification, this seminal institution close to Howard's campus faces property taxes that threaten its survival. With the support of Councilmember Brianne K. Nadeau, Bill 2375 has been introduced to the D.C. City Council to provide three years of tax abatement for the business, allowing it to continue to serve its pivotal role in the intellectual and cultural life of the community. Among the many who offered testimony in support of this bill at the hearing, was Professor Greg Carr of Howard University. He appeals to the council with this account that grounds Sankofa in the legacy of its founders Haile and Shrikiana Garima and stresses its importance as an institution in a changing city. This council can and must turn toward preserving and nurturing the ground in which Sankofa and its sister institutions across the district have taken root. It has a local, national, regional, and international reputation as the intellectual and cultural heart of the Shaw Howard community. The country's three oldest and largest black book publishers, Haiki Mabuti, Paul Coates, who's sitting here today, and Kasahun Chikoli, Black America senior historian Gerald Horn, and many, many others have held book signings and discussions there on a weekly basis. As new residents jog, walk their dogs, and or push their baby strollers up and down Georgia Avenue, and to our chagrin, through some spaces they have not yet learned the meaning of to D.C. and the world, our neighborhood is changing. Change is inevitable. Changing of character is not. As a D.C. transplant who knew of and made pilgrimage to Sankofa, Howard, Florida Avenue, Grill, Blue Nile, Everlasting Life, and other touchstone black institutions well before I knew anything else about the city, I can safely say that Sankofa is a pillar in D.C.'s relevance, far beyond its borders. People come and go. Institutions endure. This tax abatement for Sankofa forestalls an act of state-suborn cultural institution genocide. Today I use my one voice and the generation of faculty and students I represent to support it, not only in this committee session, but nationally and internationally. Thank you for your time. We're all certain you will make the right decision. Thank you. For updates on the passage of Bill 2375 and its consequences for Sankofa, keep up with their website at events.sankofa.com. From downtown D.C., this is Chantal James. And in other culture and media, the D.C. Caribbean Film Fest is underway until June 12th at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring. Ball 50, marking the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion and the launch of the LGBTQ rights movement, is June 8th, 6 p.m. to 1 a.m. at the Eaton Workshop, 1201 K Street in Northwest D.C., and the 27th Annual International Commemoration for African Ancestors who perished in the Middle Passage, the Ma'afa, and those who survived, will be held Saturday, June 8th and Sunday, June 9th. 
This year's program, marking 400 years since the arrival of Africans in Jamestown, Virginia, begins June 8th, 9.30 a.m. with a gathering at Union Temple Baptist Church in Southeast D.C., followed by a drumming procession to the Anacostia River. On Sunday, June 9th, Professor Lisa Aubrey will discuss her book, In Search of Bimbia, which traces slave ships from Cameroon to the Americas, including Trinidad and Tobago. More information is at adasiancestors.org. And those are our national and local headlines and happenings. When we come back, international news with Gerald Horn. Stay with us. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. and with president trump traveling the globe this week there's plenty of international news and i'm joined by our geopolitical analyst gerald horn to talk about it so gerald president trump was in england this week in the uk and it wasn't a state visit, but he certainly made his mark, and he certainly managed to anger a lot of the people in London who were out in the streets and around the country in mass to protest him. Well, first of all, he suggested that if Great Britain left the European Union, then there would be everything on the table in terms of a trade negotiation with the United States, including the vaunted National Health Service in Great Britain, that is to say, what we might call Medicare for All, uh, which is dear to the hearts, even of conservatives who objected. But I think that the wider agenda, which somehow has been lost, is that Mr. Trump basically wants to destroy the European Union. That's why he's so pro-Brexit, that is to say, Britain exiting from the European Union, because he sees the European Union as a kind of German front and he sees Chancellor Merkel and Germany as an antagonist, and he feels that if Britain leaves the European Union in a reversal of fortune, at least in terms of what's happened for the last three centuries, uh, Britain would be a kind of appendage of the United States, which is ironic since North America started off as an appendage of England. And I think that that's what's also driving people to the streets Because when many people in London think of the United States of America, they think of eating chicken with chlorine as an emblem of U.S. society. And certainly they don't want to be an appendage of Washington. Also internationally, there are very big developments in terms of the U.S.-China relationship. You are correct. This is getting very ominous and dangerous. Uh, I was watching a session at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., that had a lengthy seminar on a possible war between the United States on the one hand and China and Russia on the other. Uh, There were a number of very nasty and venomous exchanges between the U.S. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo and a high-level foreign ministry spokesperson in in Beijing in the wake of the so-called Tiananmen Massacre 
of 30-odd years ago in June 1989, this is a relationship that it seems to me was bound to go off the rails. It started in its most intense phase in the early 1970s when President Richard M. Nixon traveled to China to basically effectuate an anti-Soviet entente with the People's Republic of China. The payoff was massive direct foreign investment to China, which has created this juggernaut. In return, China did the bidding, in a sense, of U.S. imperialism by waging war on Vietnam in 1979, after Vietnam overthrew the genocidal Khmer Rouge in Cambodia uh, just before that. And then, in the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, Beijing carried more water for the United States of America. Recall those were the years of the so-called Japanic, when there was this fear in Washington that Japan was in the passing lane. You see that reflected in Hollywood cinema and such films as Rising Sun with Sean Connery and Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck and Black Rain with Michael Douglas. And China was very useful to the United States in helping to bring Japan to its knees and help to instigate a so-called lost decade. But now, since May 2019, Mr. Trump has surveyed the landscape, and he does not like what he sees. What he sees is the so-called Made in China Initiative 2025, which sees China, by 2025, being the world leader in quantum computing and green energy and robotics and artificial intelligence. And by the way, with regard to artificial intelligence, Vladimir Putin has suggested that whoever leads in that important field will basically be the leader of the world. Then there's the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this trillion-dollar infrastructure package, which can be reduced, in essence, to all roads lead to China. That is to say, railways that are rumbling between eastern China and western Europe, uh, not to mention uh, other kinds of ways to tie the markets of various economies to the Chinese market. And so this has led to this trade war and the sanctions on Huawei in particular, which is a major competitor of Apple Computer, a major competitor of Cisco, which builds infrastructure for the Internet. But what's striking about Mr. Trump's policy is that instead of trying to bring together an alliance to confront China, he's taking on all comers like a drunk in a bar. Uh, He's thinking about imposing sanctions against Mexico, he's thinking about imposing sanctions against Japan, he's thinking about imposing sanctions against Germany, he's trying to break up the European Union, and then at the same time, there are contradictions in the Republican Party camp. You might have seen this lengthy investigative piece in the New York Times a few days ago that suggests that Elaine Chao, Mr. Trump's Secretary of Transportation, who of course is Chinese ancestry and is the spouse of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Uh, has very close connections with the leadership in Beijing, if not uh, economic ties, certainly political ties. And in fact, uh, the same could be said for her spouse, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, which was uh, quite scandalous, I must say. Uh, If the United States goes along this path of decoupling uh, the U.S. and Chinese economies, there's going to be massive fallout on this side of the Pacific, Uh, You'll see prices rise, particularly at Walmart, which in many ways is China Incorporated on the East Bank of the Pacific. Uh, You'll see uh, perhaps losses for Apple Computer, which designs its iPhone, excuse me, manufactures its iPhones in China, and Starbucks, which of course 
uh, is opening more coffee shops in China than it is in the United States of America, uh, KFC, Ditto, and at the same time, you're going to see fallout on campuses because there are about 360,000 Chinese students on university campuses. In fact, in a real sense, what many graduate programs in the hard sciences, what they've been doing is cutting back on affirmative action in terms of admission of black and brown students to certain graduate programs. And basically, I'm afraid to say, admitting Chinese students because they pay full tuition where as, they, as these campuses see it, black and brown students would have to get financial aid. But that kind of arrangement might be coming to a close because China has advised many of its nationals to be careful about traveling to the United States of America. And then finally, there's this threat that China has suggested of curtailing so-called rare earth mineral and metal exports to the United States of America. Rare earths are these uh, substances that are basically only found in places like China. And China has a stranglehold on their production, which is very expensive. They're very useful for everything from consumer electronics to fighter jets. And so this relationship between the United States and China is entering a dangerous new phase, and we may be on the cusp of a new international situation altogether. It seems like both parties in Congress have pretty much gone along with these heightened tensions and hostilities with China. But this week, there was a lot of pushback to Trump's proposed tariffs on Mexico uh, that would increase gradually be, if they did not cooperate with his vision of immigration control through through the through that country. Well, this is understandable. Uh, I think one commentator suggested that if you put tariffs on Mexico, you're basically putting tariffs on Texas. You're basically putting tariffs on California. You're basically putting tariffs on Arizona, given the integration of the economies of those three states with the economy of Mexico. Not to mention raising the prices of cars and vehicles and pickup trucks because the production and supply chain to manufacture a pickup truck in Michigan runs through China. That is to say, part of it's manufactured in Mexico and then part of it's manufactured in Michigan. And so this has led many Republicans, including Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky even, to start raising objections. Of course, they had little to say about uh, snatching infants away from their parents along the border. Uh, they had little to say about the human rights violations along the border. Uh, but now, since U.S. elites in Ford Motor Company in particular are about to get it in the neck, all of a sudden they found their voices. Well, I want to end with the Sudan. The, we've talked about the Sudan and the popular uprising there. Give us an update on what's happening in Sudan. Well, what's happened this week is that scores of unarmed protesters were shot down mercilessly by the military junta, which apparently plans to rule Sudan indefinitely. You had sexual assaults in various kinds of battery also being taken in the streets of Sudan. The not-too-hidden agenda is that even though the African Union 
the continental African body that is sort of a mini United Nations on the African continent has suspended Sudan's membership and is thinking about imposing various kinds of sanctions, the fact is that uh, General al-Sisi, who rules, rules Egypt and is the neighbor of Sudan, is very supportive of this clampdown, this crackdown in Sudan. Uh, this is, in a sense, the way he came to power in Egypt in the first instance. And he, in turn, is backed by Saudi Arabia, which is recruiting child soldiers in Sudan to fight their failed war in Yemen, not to mention United Arab Emirates, which is the sidekick of Saudi Arabia, uh, which also is supportive of this military junta. The protesters say that they plan to stay in the streets. They say that they're going to heighten their protests. And, of course, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Okay, well, we'll also wait and see what happens on, on this side of the Atlantic. Apparently, there's a new coalition, I could say, of lawmakers who are trying to squash uh, Trump's recent attempt to ship more arms, $8 billion worth of arms, to Saudi Arabia. Well, let's hope that they're successful and that their effort will survive a certain presidential veto. I'm going to keep watching the situation. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. I want to welcome all of the members, the witnesses, many guests in the audience uh, to our second hearing on uh, the deadly serious topic of the resurgence of violent white supremacy in America. Last month we held a hearing to help us understand the scope of the problem and we heard from a number of witnesses about the consequences of the government not acting to meet the threat including from Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer who was the young woman killed by uh, white supremacists in Charlottesville two years ago. We heard also from former FBI and Department of Homeland Security 
officials on what the agencies are doing today and not doing and should be doing in response. One message came through loud and clear at that hearing. White supremacists today constitute the most significant threat of domestic terror in the United States, but the federal government lacks a comprehensive and cohesive strategy for addressing the problem. Last month's hearing left me with three primary concerns. First, the FBI's data collection and reporting system at best drastically underreports hate violence in the U.S. and at worst deliberately obscures the scope of the threat. Second, the FBI's allocation of anti-terrorism resources is skewed to international terrorism, despite data showing domestic terror to be the greater threat today. And third, the Department of Homeland Security appears to have no overall strategic plan for how to counter and prevent white supremacist violence. It's my sincere hope that our friends at the FBI FBI and Homeland Security um, who are here today are prepared to adequately address all of these concerns today. The FBI's data reporting on hate-motivated violence, both in the Criminal Investigative Division and the Counterterrorism Division, is flawed. Every witness before the subcommittee, whether invited by the majority or the minority, agreed on one thing. The FBI's hate crime statistics are inaccurate and do not reflect the reality of hate-motivated violence in our country. In numbers that are now familiar to us all, from 2013 to 2017, the FBI reported on average 7,500 hate crimes annually. During that same time period, the Bureau of Justice Statistics National Crime Victimization Survey estimated on average 200,000 hate crimes annually, which means the FBI is reporting one hate crime for more than 20 hate crimes that are reported uh, in the National Crime Victimization Survey. There are data leaks in almost every stage of the hate crimes reporting process, from the hesitation of victims to report hate crimes to the police, to the failure of local and state police to report hate crimes to the FBI, to the FBI not reporting hate crimes that they are aware of and filling in for gaps in the record. What's more, the FBI's data excludes incidents that any reasonable person would agree should have been included. Perhaps the most prominent example was the murder of Heather Heyer herself in Charlottesville in 2017. Why was her murder not reported as a hate crime? The best that I can understand, uh, this baffling omission reflects a problem first at the local level, as local police did not report it as a hate crime, um, but it also betrays a, a systemic feeling by the FBI which apparently made little or no effort at all to audit its own statistics to independently verify the accuracy of the data being submitted from around the country. So that is inexplicable and unacceptable, and I know we can do better. And I yield now to the gentlelady from Massachusetts, Ms. Presley. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I want to pick up on uh, my line of questioning from the last hearing and also some of the uh, the comments from Representative Clay. So since 1995, black Americans have been victims of 66% of all racially motivated hate crimes. And uh, again, I'm sure that's, uh, you know, underreported and counted. In 2017 alone, black Americans were targeted in more than half of all hate crimes reported. So that's what we know. So what we know is that the numbers don't lie and black Americans continue to find themselves at the greatest risk, which is why this designation of black identity extremism seems particularly absurd. Um, we had a, a former FBI official on the record who said that black identity extremists pose no threat to our public safety. Would you agree with that, Mr. McGarity? 
I, I would pose any uh, any extremist who wants to commit violence is a threat to is a threat to society, whether it's white or black. I wasn't here when the black identity extremist uh, assessment was written, but it was written back in 2016 during a horrific time of July 2016, July 7th and July 17th. Two events on July 7th, targeting of police officers. Yes, excuse me, I'm so sorry, reclaiming my time. I'm aware of that incident, and I think that um, the designation was created uh, in the wake of six isolated and unrelated incidents of violence. The, the only common denominator there is that they were black. Is that correct? Yes, and, and so okay. very reclaiming similar my to time. the racially motivated I'm sorry, violent reclaiming extremes. my time. So those were six unrelated incidents where the only common denominator was race. So in order for a group to be categorized as extremist or as a credible threat, how many hate-related incidents need to take place? Is there a number? How many hate-related incidents need to take place in order for a group to be designated as extremist and a credible threat? Because this was six, Right. And the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, I just met with them. They, have thir- they, they count 32 white supremacist extremists who murdered individuals in the U.S. since 2016. I just want to make sure that our investment and our surveillance is commiserate with those that are actually disproportionately most being victimized. And we're not creating categories as another excuse to target and racially profile one of the most vulnerable uh, communities. So what is the uh, criteria that determines a group as a credible threat? This was six incidents, and I'm just we, talking so to you about to 32. Clear, from my last testimony, we don't work groups. We don't work ideologies. We don't work movements. What we work are those individuals who have an ideology or using an ideology to commit violence. Okay, so, so how— m- if we have six individuals who are looking to commit violence and they are together, we will have six cases on those Reclaiming my time. They were unrelated. So how many extremist killings has the FBI linked to Black Lives Matter or similar black activist groups? We don't work Black Lives Matter. It's, it's, a, it's a movement. It's an ideology. We don't, that's, we don't work that. Okay. So, so the answer is none. So can you just say that for the record? There's been no... Extreme, there's been no killing that the FBI could link to Black Lives Matter or similar, similar black activist groups. To your knowledge? To my knowledge, I'd have to go back, but to my knowledge right now, no. None. Okay. All right. So, again, going back to what created this absurd designation, these were six incidents, um, and I don't want to look at those tragedies lightly, but they were unrelated. So there was nothing organized there. You said that you are intentionally not using, until Rep. Clay brought it up, the term black identity extremist. So you're not using the term, but we still have the designation. Correct? No, we, I, I've been in this job 17 months. We, we don't have that designation. The designation no longer exists. Hasn't existed since I've been here for 17 months. Okay, so no one is being surveyed or monitored uh, under the category of black identity extremist. No. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, I just want to make sure because, again, we have some conflicting information here. I know there are a number of organizations, including the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, which have asked that this category be rolled back. So I just want to make sure, again, on the record, we're clear that this no longer exists. There is not a black identity extremist category, and there's no surveillance happening based on that designation. I can tell you there's no surveillance on that activity because we don't work that as a group. And I can also tell you I had a phone conversation myself with Noble about that 
months ago. So I don't know where, where the information is coming from. I've been here 17 months. We are not using black identity extremists as a term or okay. for a group. And was this announced publicly or is this the first time you're saying this on the record? No, I said it a couple weeks ago when I testified up on the Hill as well. Okay. You just heard Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts questioning Michael McGarity, Assistant Director of the FBI's Counterterrorism Division. Before her, Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, they were both speaking at the hearing on the federal response to white supremacy held June 4, 2019 by the House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam said this week that he will convene a special session in the state legislature to implement new gun control measures after the mass shooting that killed 12 people plus the gunman at a municipal building in Virginia Beach on May 31st. Northam says he will call for laws including universal background checks and a ban on assault weapons. Virginia Beach, a favorite vacation destination for residents of the Mid-Atlantic, became the site of the deadliest mass shooting of 2019. And when we in news organizations mention this shooting as the most deadly of this year, we are acknowledging the scores of horrific shootings that have gone before. And with no stiffer gun control laws enacted, the shootings we fear will come. Well, for this segment, I'm joined by journalist Tom Hartman, author of a new book, that makes the links between today's deadly gun culture in this country and the founding of this country on genocide and slavery. He will be reading from his book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, on Monday, June 10, 6.30 p.m. at the 450 K Street location of Busboys and Poets in Northwest D.C. Welcome to On the Ground, Tom. Hey, Esther. Thanks so much for having me with you. Well, when I had a chance to read through your book, I thought of the fact that the Movement for Black Lives has been instrumental in educating the public about how American police, policing, and police violence has its roots in slave patrols that were charged with terrorizing enslaved Africans and capturing those who escaped, and often capturing and enslaving free Africans. But your book starts even further back than that, with Europeans landing in this hemisphere so talk to us about how guns made possible not only slavery, but the genocide of indigenous people that gave birth to this country. Sure. The genocide of Native Americans was the largest genocide in the history of the world, as far as we can tell. It, it lasted 400 years. It, well, some would argue 500. They would argue that it's still going on. And somewhere between 50 and 100 million people were slaughtered. Many of them died of disease, but many of them died from guns. And it was that gun technology, that weapon technology that, that really you know, facilitated the expansion into this country. And there have been a lot of terrible genocides around the world from, well, obviously, the one, you know, the one that everybody thinks of is Germany and the Jews. But if you look at the colonial period in the African continent, in India, 
There have been genocides in Asia. But in any of those countries, you can go in and still see people who look like the indigenous people, same in Central and South America. The, the, you know, the, the people who, quote, look Mexican are actually, that's Indian blood that you're seeing or Indian ancestry. But here in the United States, you can travel all over this country and never see a Native American. We cleansed, I guess, is the word. Well, that was the word Andrew Jackson was using. He was known as the Indian killer. And so it was just this massive, massive genocide. I was really struck by the description of Christopher Columbus using weapons to basically initiating the trafficking of Taino people from this hemisphere back to Europe and actually initiating the first kind of like trafficking of women. Yeah, there was another depiction that I was really struck by. It was really heartbreaking of a three-year-old boy just being shot like a deer in the Yucatan because the Taino people or the indigenous people weren't considered as human by these European colonizers, these people coming across the ocean. And and I think you already mentioned the figure of up to 100 million Native Americans killed. Tell us more about the genocide of the Native Americans, because the way that Native American wars are chronicled, if they are at all, they're depicted as kind of wars that white people won against the Native Americans. You know, just like we were at war, we won, they lost. And they're not depicted as a genocide, forced removal, or attacks on Native Americans at all. And then as part of that, if you could just talk a little bit about the Texas Rangers, because I was, not only is that the name of a baseball team that's kind of celebrated in popular culture, but it's also the name of a lot of films, you know, Texas Ranger, and it's glorified as something uh, glamorous and maybe patriotic or just tough and law and order and not what it was really in history. Yeah, well, a genocidal force that was also enforcing slavery. You know, the simple reality is that the Europeans uh, arrived in this country with what uh, Professor Jack Forbes described to me years ago when he was still alive. He was a professor of Native American studies at uh, UC Davis and and, uh, a Native American himself. And he said that the Europeans came to this continent infected with the uh, mental illness that in the language of the Lakota was called wetiko which means the willingness to eat others, basically a cannibal. In fact, he wrote a book called Columbus and Other Cannibals, which is brilliant. And it's still in print. In fact, it just came back into print. And the Native Americans were confronted with basically three choices with this you know, superior armament, the guns that these people brought. One was to run, uh, which many did. The other was to just uh, go along, you know, be slaughtered or be relocated, which many did. And then the third was to try to fight back. And he said most tribes really didn't do the fight back part. And the reason why was because they didn't want to become the oppressor. They didn't want to acquire that mental illness of Wetiko. There were some Native American wars that have been documented, uh, tribes against tribes where people were killed. But those mostly had to do with the Denny people coming out of Canada as a result of a kind of micro climate change thing that happened in the 1600s down into the central part of what we now call the United States and, you know, having, having conflict as a consequence of that. But most Native American conflicts were resolved by things like playing lacrosse. They would have these three day long lacrosse tournaments that involved, you know, a hundred thousand people and, and it, it just to literally resolve things like land disputes. And 
So the official policy of the United States government, of course, this was the official policy of the British East India Company, which controlled the United States from 1609 when the first East India colony was created at Jamestown up until the American Revolution. The official policy of the East India Company was kill all the Indians, take their land, and turn it into something you can make money with. And then that became the official policy of the U.S. government. You know, and, and literally every every president right up until up until Lincoln, and and really many of them after Lincoln, were continuing this this process of basically stealing land from Native Americans and, and, and killing them whenever it was possible. Probably the most notorious of them was Andrew Jackson, the guy that uh, Donald Trump has his picture hanging on his wall right next to his, his desk in the Oval Office. Andrew Jackson was known as the Indian killer, and he was, he was merciless. He was so proud of what he did. And he was also a slaveholder. So this, this whole idea of manifest destiny that was tied into Christianity that, that finds its roots in the Bible and, and, and particularly in the book of Joshua really animated and justified this slaughter. And it's, it's really time for us to realize that these were not good people. And, and a lot of the, and the whole cowboy mythology, similarly, Esther, the, the, uh, the gunslingers and all that, um, first of all, all across the West in the, in the 1800s, there was rigorous gun control. If you showed up in, in Wyatt Earp's town, you had to take your guns to the sheriff's office and get a ticket, get a, get a receipt. You know, a, it's like checking your coat. Um, and you couldn't, and you had to pick it up when you left town, but you couldn't, ha- you couldn't carry a gun in town. It was illegal. Mm. But, the, but the, the James brothers and all these other, you know, famous, uh, you know, gunslingers, they were actually, almost without exception, they were Confederate soldiers who had committed such heinous war crimes during the Confederate War that their own people didn't want them back. Their own states didn't want them back. And in many cases, there were, you know, uh, multiple arrest warrants against them for war crimes. And so they, they went out west where they could start over again, and they continued to be evil people, basically. They continued to be robbers and rapists and murderers. And uh, that part of the history is never told because they were turned into these noble figures by these basically New York writers who were just trying to sell magazines. So yeah. we really need to re-understand uh, our history if we want to you know, be moving forward in any way that makes any sense. And then slavery which came, you know, within a, the first decade of, of uh, Europeans occupying this country, uh, slavery came along. And you can really only have slavery with a police state. Uh, without a police state, slavery doesn't work because slaves, nobody wants to be a slave, right? People, people revolt against it. And in fact, there were a lot of slave revolts in the South that are generally not taught as part of our history. And guns facilitated that. And then the, the, the southern states, particularly Georgia, Virginia, and North and South Carolina, had these things called slave patrols, and they were the state militias. And every white man between the ages of 17 and 49, as I recall, had to show up every week and uh, on a particular day and ride the route and look for runaway slaves, look for black people who might be poorly behaving. In Georgia, every week, every, the residents, the residential areas of every slave in the state had to be inspected for weapons. So, I mean, it, it was pretty radical. And then during and after Reconstruction, those slave patrols in the South were reinvented as the police departments in the South. They had played the role of police prior to that. There, outside of a few big cities, there basically weren't any police uh, departments, uh, the slave patrollers took care of policing. 
And as a consequence of that, we've got this horrible legacy of racist policing where last year, if you were killed by a stranger, odds are one out of three, you were killed by a police officer. And and that's pretty breathtaking. You don't see that in any other country in, in, in developed country in the world. I noticed that you mentioned the the term the militias, and that is something that people always mention when they talk about the Second Amendment, and they talk about the well-regulated militia. So talk about that, because I don't think that people realize that the militia that the Second Amendment is talking about are the slave patrols. Yeah, in, in the southern states, absolutely. To, to really understand this, we need to go step one small step back, which is after the Revolutionary War and as the country was putting itself together and the Constitution was being debated, there was a general feeling among the founders and the framers of the Constitution that they did not ever want this country to have a permanent standing army. They had seen so many thousands of years of European history where standing armies did uh, military coups, you know, and took over the governments. And in fact, uh, three states had written into their constitutions a ban on standing armies, which was not state militias, but, you know, a federal standing army. They would not participate. They would not allow their people to go, all that kind of stuff. And so when Madison kind of shepherded the Constitutional Convention in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, and his mentor was Jefferson, who was the U.S. envoy to, Par- to France at the time, living in Paris. And so he sent a copy of that to Jefferson in the November of 1787 and said, what do you think, boss? And uh, Jefferson wrote back saying, well, here's what I don't like. He said, I, you know, I like the idea of three branches of government and this, that, and the other thing. But he says, what I don't like is that there is no ban on commercial monopolies. That was the only part of his objections that didn't get written into the Bill of Rights. That there isn't absolute habeas corpus and, you know, basically the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth amendments. That there's not an absolute uh, statement of freedom of the press and freedom of and from religion. But he also said, there has to be a ban on standing armies. There must be. And so, you know, they went back and Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says that Congress can appropriate money for anything, right? The, the, the ability of Congress to tax, it, you know, it, it says for the general welfare. That's a wide open door. And they can spend money on anything with one single exception. There is one sentence in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution that says that the army may only be funded for two years. So literally, Congress, ever since 1789, when the Constitution is ratified, every two years, Congress has to reauthorize the existence of the United States Army and all the other parts of the military except for the Navy. And that was very, very intentional. So then that, sentiment, that was the sentiment in the North that then led to the Second Amendment. They wanted to have, if we're not going to have a national army, we want to have at least every state have a militia that can be called up in time of invasion. Keep in mind, Canada at that time was occupied by the British. Florida was occupied by the Spanish. Part of Louisiana was occupied by the French. You know, we were surrounded by countries with whom we'd had wars. And so in the North, these are you know, the state militias. In the South, all of the militias were the slave patrols, you know, period, full stop. That drove the economy of the South. And so when the Constitutional Ratifying Convention in Virginia in the summer of 1787 was held, The largest slaveholder in Virginia was a fellow named Patrick Henry, who famously said, give me liberty or give me death, which is a mind-boggling irony. And Henry got up and gave this speech in which he said that he was going to shoot down the Constitution because he was convinced 
the original draft of the Second Amendment said for the security of a free nation. And he said, this amendment gives the president the power to call up our slave patrol and, and ship them to some other state. And if they do that, we will not survive it, basically. You know, the slaves will revolt and, and that'll be the end of us. And James Madison replied to him saying, you know, I think you're being paranoid, essentially. Uh, he didn't use that word, but yeah, that's basically what he said. And Henry said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow this thing up and Virginia will not ratify the Constitution if you don't change the Second Amendment. So Madison changed it to for the security of a free state. And that's how the Second Amendment reads now. And that was specifically and explicitly to protect the slave patrols in Virginia, North and South Carolina, and Georgia. We have a lot more to cover in terms of the election of Barack Obama and how that spurred the weapon sales and also your solutions that you have in the book. But we're going to have to record that part two and put it on our website, onthegroundshow.org. I've been speaking to Tom Hartman, author and journalist. He will be reading from his new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, on Monday, June 10th, 6.30 p.m. at the 450 K Street location of Busboys and Poets in Northwest D.C. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. Esther, thanks so much for having me on your program. It's a, it's a real privilege, and I appreciate it. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included Gord Guanco by Women of the Calabash, Capture Land by Chronix, and an outro from the album Long Time No See by Chico DeBarge. Go to onthegroundshow.org to support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. A special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.